Hello, I'm Annalisa Mackey, CEO of PAS Program LLC, publishers of the award-winning PAS Social-Emotional Learning Curriculum for Preschool to Grade 5, and the author of the Evidence-Informed Emozi SEL Program for 6th through Grade 12, and the co-author of the upcoming book, Social-Emotional Classroom, A New Way to Nurture Students and Understand the Brain. Welcome to this episode of Social-Emotional Us, a podcast for educators, parents, and anyone interested in improving the lives of children through social-emotional learning. Welcome, Tia and Lucretia. Thanks so much for joining us today. Would you ladies mind telling us a little bit more about yourselves and your journey and, and the work that's brought you here? So again, my name is Tia Starker-Glass. I'm an associate professor of educational psychology and elementary education at UNC Charlotte. I direct the Anti-Racism Graduate Certificate Program on campus and a mom and a wife and, you know, a daughter. And so this work ultimately is just my, my lifelong work and just making sure that folks are racially literate and racially aware. Those are the, that's the content that I teach within my undergraduate and graduate courses. That's what I do. Great. Thank you. And I am Lucretia Carter Berry. I am the founder and president of Brownicity. That's Brownicity is a made up word. Uh, brown representing the melanin that we all have. And Icity comes from ethnicity, which means that which we have in common. And so essentially we are many hues, one humanity. That's our tagline. And Brownicity is an education agency that fosters education um, designed to cultivate justice and belonging. And so we work with, we have excellent people like Dr. Tia Glass and other educators and parents um, on our team who bring evidence-based, scholarly informed anti-racism education to the public. So that's companies and churches, schools, classrooms, and communities. And so we want people to have access to um, the support and guidance they need to grow, um, to become anti-racist and to be positioned to change and create the society that we know is possible. I am in an interracial marriage and um, my husband and I have three multi-ethnic daughters. And yes, so being a mom uh, catapulted me <laughs> into doing this work publicly. I really appreciate you both uh, joining us today. I think um, I think I'm really excited for the conversation that we're going to have today. I had a chance to have a sneak peek of your book, and I, like I, as I mentioned, essentially read it in one sitting, and I feel like I went through the whole gamut of things. You know, I was excited to read it. I thought that the 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 topic was compelling. It made me think deeply about my experience, my relationships that I've had in the past, my relationships that I'd like to have going forward. It also made me, as you warn in the book, about taking it slow because change is, is I think, you, you link things to planting seeds and growing and strong roots take time to grow um, and, and a, strong, a strong plant. Would you agree with that? Yes. Statement? Great. <laughs> 
Yes. So at the same time, you, you warn about taking some time to go through this process, but I was so excited to read the book and I wanted to sort of race through it and, <laughs> and be at the end and, and ready to go. But I recognize that um, what you're saying, what you're saying in your book is true, that it takes time, hard work, reflection, introspection. And it's, and it's also true, I think, of we were talking about social emotional learning as well and how uh, the link between doing something new, thinking a different way takes time and starting somewhere is a good place to start. So I would be interested to tell you to tell me a little bit about, you know, what you recommend for people who haven't maybe had a chance to think about this as deeply as you would like or as deeply as they would like. Yeah, I think the way that we got to this book was based on both of our experiences. And so when I reflect on teaching pre-service teachers, I focused on culturally responsive teaching. And so making sure that, you know, teachers were integrating students' uh, perspectives, their, you know, lives from home into the classroom and, you know, teaching this for years. And it was difficult for some students. And it was just like a light bulb went off. I realized that it makes sense that, you know, my students were having difficulty being culturally responsive because they didn't have the racial literacy as the foundation. And so from then, I really had to kind of stop and back up and really help my students. But then, you know, anybody else I was working with to really develop that concept of a racial understanding, just understanding what race is and the definitions of and mm-hmm. and what it looks like in our society. And so I think that was the way that it came to this process of being, a, you know, planting seeds and understanding that this is a, a journey is that we have to start wherever we start, right, wherever we are in our experiences, but still going back to visit those the, the seed of, of race and what it is and how it impacts us and how it looks in the world. And that is kind of the, the start of the seed, the jumping off place that we like to, um, we like to use. And one thing, another thing we saw was that a lot of people, and it's understandably so, people want to get to the fruit, like they want the fruit. You know, we are post the Civil Rights Act you know, and we know um, if you're fortunate, you're able to have studied and learned about the civil rights movement and even the context in which it existed, you know, it's so important. I think as a nation, then we thought, oh, well, we're post-civil rights movement. So then, and the Civil Rights Act, so then everything is in order and as it should be. And, and so then we can just, you know, experience the fruit of that. But even, um, you know, Dr. King, after the Civil Rights Act was passed, said he's, he uses the metaphor, but we are only a bud. We are not yet a flower. And I think that's the time that we're in. But I think, of course, you know, we want the fruit and we want to see the manifestation, you know, of this work. But honestly, we haven't all, you know, cultivated the work yet to see the fruit. So, Oftentimes, you know, maybe parents and teachers and uh, or educators and leaders would reach out and they want that fruit and which is great. Yes, please strive for the fruit. However, you have to plant the seeds for that fruit. So 
currently we still live in the garden or the manifestation of the seed that was planted, you know, pre-civil rights act, right? We still are seeing I mean, the people who like voted or didn't vote or, you know, set those policies in place, they are still alive, right? And so now here, here we are, you know, in their garden and we're needing to uproot into seeds of injustice and we're needing to plant yeah, um, seeds of belonging injustice so we can see and our children can see the fruit of that. But I, but I feel like then what we've observed is like, okay, we understand that for other topics, but when it comes to race and anti-racism, then that logic goes out the window. And, you know, we want to punish the bad apples instead of uprooting the toxic roots. Do you know what I mean? Or, and so, yeah, it's the same process of, you know, planting and growing and, you know, the seed metaphor and the growth metaphor and gardening is, you know, pervasive, you know, it's in every culture. So we try to choose something that, okay, a child can understand this, you know, um, regardless of your background, you know, even if like, if you, regardless of your faith, yeah, you can connect to the seed growth, like metaphor, embrace that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that metaphor is very accessible to all. I think that does make sense, you know, and I think you're right. We do want the fruit. It, it reminds me when you're talking about wanting the fruit. I know when I've gone in to talk with teachers about social emotional learning and they want children to be able to make better decisions and choices and to get along well with each other and to understand themselves well. What they really want to jump to is the, is the self-regulation and problem solving because typically in a classroom setting, that's where the issues are occurring and they want that magic bullet Let's jump to that lesson right now and do it, right? Mm -hmm. So that makes entire sense to me that, you know, in terms of understanding racial justice and and inclusion, that people would want that fruit right away too. But you do have to crawl before you can walk and you have to walk before you can run. And so I totally understand that metaphor as well. Yes. So when schools do want to make these changes or make sure that they're providing safe, caring, inclusive environments for the students that they have in their schools. What are the ways in which you feel that they should um, consider starting to approach this work? I think the ways in which we can um, help educators pull this content or get this content into into schools and to districts is to first just acknowledge that there might be an issue and not necessarily an issue like something has happened and now we want to react, but really reflectively thinking about, let's look at the population of our staff and our students and let's be proactive about really thinking about, well, is this space, is it just do all students and all staff belong here, right? And how have we kind of cultivated that that environment? And so I also want to say that it, it doesn't make a difference whether or not this is a predominantly white school or if there are predominantly, you know, students of, of color that are the majority in that school. I think 
all schools should be having these conversations and doing these things. So, you know, again, looking at school policies, the student and parent handbook, looking at the the rules that exist within classrooms, making sure that we're looking at the curriculum and, you know, how are all students represented and what is being taught, what is being enforced, you know, really just thinking about the ways that students see things as fair because they may not say this is an injustice, but they will definitely say this isn't fair, right? And when we consistently kind of hear that pattern of that's not fair, I was treated differently as opposed to someone else, or that rule isn't fair, you know, that is a kind of a red flag for any adult to kind of pay attention to what is being cultivated in that space. But then I think along with that, it is then acknowledging that we have some work to do and listening to the people, if it's students, if it's staff, you know, young folks or, you know, the, the adults in that space, but then giving them an opportunity to be heard so mm-hmm. that we can then think about what we can do, right? So we're, it's almost kind of looking at the soil. What's, what's in that soil, right, okay. that is causing some of the injustice or the unfairness or the othering? right? That could be happening and kind of turning that soil and then really thinking about what are some seeds that we can plant so that students do feel or and staff feel like they are being treated fairly or in a just manner and they belong in that space, right? Because no one wants to feel othered. And so we have to make sure that we first just acknowledge it and then just take a look, you know, introspectively, similar to the book, let's do some reflection. Let's, I'm not, no one's going to point fingers, but let's just look at ourselves first and then think about what it is that we can do to be proactive as opposed to just reacting to all of these small situations that happen that still cause harm. So how can we prevent the harm as opposed to reacting to the harm that that does occur? Lucretia, what do you have to add? Oh, just very little. Thank you. That was an excellent. <laughs> just coming kind of the other way. As an educator and parent, I wouldn't want to do anything, support anything, manifest anything, co-sign anything that would hinder the dreams and aspirations of a child, right? And so we right. think about it that way is, you know, everything that we're doing from, you know, the bus schedule <laughs> to the books that are selected, you know, to the how you good morning in the morning time or good afternoon when they leave. Everything, you know, should be about, you know, this, again, cultivating <laughs> and supporting, you know, every child be, be able to feel seen and valued, uh, heard, appreciated, knowing that they're a gift. Not, you know, well, you're just consequence because you happen to live in a neighborhood or your consequence because of busing or something, you know, like that. Like mm-hmm. We at district school educators, parents, you know, want to love on purpose and that should show up um, in our policies and how we design um, education, educational experiences from, you know, our homes to, again, our districts. I agree. You know, I think I always I always say as educators, well, in, in medicine, they're, you know, first do no harm. That's what they say in, in, med- in medicine. You get a medical degree. That's their 
first do no harm. And I also think that in education, that should also be our, our, a motto that we have, first do no harm, because I think we can all think back to teachers that we really loved, that motivated us, that helped us to stretch ourselves farther than we thought we could. We also can think of teachers that did the opposite and made us hide and in and not do that and not try and make we and held us back for a thing that they said or did by accident or on purpose. Correct. You know. And I think we we need to think about what we do with our children carefully and thoughtfully. Agreed. Because it it makes a difference and it changes the trajectory of it can change the trajectory of a child's life in a good way or a very bad way. Absolutely. So yeah. First do no harm. I think. I like so <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> it wasn't mine. So, you know. I was thinking when you were talking about thinking about all of the children in the space, all the, the adults in the space. And I was thinking about some of the schools that I've worked in where, you know, there's, upwards of 30 different languages spoken in one school alone and having to try to meet um, just even the communication you know ability to try to communicate with all of the families in the language that their language that they speak at home which is a challenge but i think that diversity is really an important thing to be thinking about how are you reflecting the back to the students that they bring uh, to the table, what they bring to the classroom is valuable and we can all grow and learn from what what they have to offer. And we're stronger as a community and a collective because of that. I think the stumbling block sometimes is we don't pause to take that time to reflect on how are we, how are we doing that. And you can err on the side of thoughtlessness I don't mean it in a malicious sort of thoughtless way. I mean it just in a thoughtless way. What are your thoughts on that? I think it it comes back down to, you know, how we were socialized in our own households and how schools have socialized us and really reflecting mm -hmm. on what are our norms, right. right? What are those normative behaviors? Well, you know, because the majority of folks may speak English, so that's just our normative way to communicate. But we also have to consider, so, you know, what other languages are spoken? And now with, you know, all the technology that is available, we could use a Google Translate or we could just bring families in to assist in the translation, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. So again, the normative behavior that does, you know, a school building is a space for educators and students even kind of needs to be disrupted, that it actually is a place for families, you know, yes. like everybody should be included and, and welcomed into the space because, again, going along the, the same thread with the do no harm, that I don't know an adult that doesn't want the best for their child or their grandchild uh, exactly. or their niece or nephew. So if a school space becomes a, a just space where everyone belongs, everyone can contribute to the success of all children, which then, you know, supports the adults who are supporting the the young people. So, uh, yeah. I agree. Yeah, I agree. What Tia said. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Amen. Amen. That. <laughs> I really appreciated what you said, though, about bringing the parents into the school. One of my first teaching experiences was teaching on a very isolated native reserve in Canada, in in the middle of British Columbia, 12 log cabins in the middle of the bush. And it was mostly, you know, the elders and the children that were there. A lot of the the parents were, you know, to get work, they had to leave the community. So they, the children stayed with their grandparents and went to this, went to the school that was on the reserve. And I often had, you know, the elders coming up to the school, coming and sitting in, in the classroom. And, you know, they would we'd be talking about maybe some sort of science topic. So, and I would ask, how would they have interpreted the, you know, what we're talking about here? And, like, you know, then the elders would talk a little bit about what they, how they saw that the world, the stories that you know, it would explain that phenomenon in, in their culture. And it was a nice opportunity to learn, to be a student as well, to learn what they thought about the world and, and the way in which they viewed the world and, and have the children see both sides and, and see that the two were not, not at odds. With yes, that. yes. As you were talking, a couple of thoughts came to mind, you know, this idea, even working in the space that you were, knowing the historical context is also yes. important, right? If yes. we're missing some of the Indigenous or Native American history that exists in that space, and you just kind of jumped into normative behavior, would you have even been welcoming of parents or grandparents into the classroom? You know what I mean? So, yeah. you know, just thinking also the importance and the value having that historical context. And then, you know, the, the brilliance of you, A, you know, allowing parents and grandparents to come in, but then B, connecting that, their experiences to the curriculum. So mm -hmm. that is the other part that we advocate for, even within the book, is just making sure that our young people see the connection between the, the historical context and the contemporary context and how that then drives your curriculum. So your parents or grandparents kind of shared their perspective on how this, you know, the science connected to their own cultural traditions or, you know, history, just the ways that they did things. But then the next time you teach it, it's not an additive. It becomes a part of and centralized in that curriculum or that lesson so that, you know, you then move forward with it. And all students see, like, it's not just a sprinkling of, but this is also a part of how and what we learn. And so, yes, gold, gold star for you. Thanks. Um, <laughs> That is, that is brilliant pedagogy right there. That's yeah. it. I, I, I appreciate that. That was very kind of you. It was um, it was a very meaningful experience for me. I hope that I was a, a teacher that gave the ones that helped kids grow and flourish a little bit more than held them back. I, I hope that that's what happened. And I think I, that's what we all are striving for, right? I believe that Lesson too. by lesson, moment by moment, we're all striving to just help make a difference or yeah bring our a game right <laughs> yes. yes so with that in mind then what are some what would you recommend for teachers who'd like to bring their, this topic up with their principals or district leaders if they feel that it they want to explore this further within their classroom within their school what would you recommend 
I always thought, um, say to find the, the ally or, you know, the person in, in your building who would be even just open to listening and start there. So it might be, you know, an assistant principal or it could be, you know, the lead administrator. It could be someone within the district, but start first with just the person that is open and come at the, the proposal or the proposition, not from this place of blaming, right? Well, we need to do better. But I often say, um, come from this curious space. Well, I was watching, you know, this documentary or I was reading this book called Teaching for Justice and Belonging. <laughs> or, you yes. know, I even tell my students, like, just blame it on me. Say, you know, I learned this thing in Dr. Glass's class and I would love to try it here. Are there some resources? Is there, you know, is there any funding? But just asking kind of from this curious space, I want to try a couple of things. Can you give me, you know, three months or six months to just try a couple of things that I have been learning about? And I have gotten to the place too in my experiences, and I'm sure Lucretia can uh, agree with this, that, you know, there are always a couple of teachers who are hair is on fire, like, let's go change all of it, you know, like whole school, whole district, like, let's go 100%. And I'm often telling them like, nope, let's, <laughs> let's start small, like <laughs> slow down. <laughs> just, let's just slow down. So, you know, ask for permission. Can I do just a, a small kind of pilot study with me and a couple of other teachers? Or can it be, you know, a couple of teachers and one administrator? And let's just try this for three months. Let's just try this for six months. And if it works and we're seeing, you know, the type of success that we want to see that isn't always based on an assessment, right? But mm -hmm. just however we're de defining success, then let's think about, wow, maybe we could roll this out to the whole school. So mm -hmm. again, I, I will always advocate for just starting small and seeing who's interested and kind of just grow it organically. Grow it in this grassroots kind of space because other teachers oftentimes will notice, well, what are you doing? You're your kids aren't quiet or they're engaged or they're, you know, y'all are doing some cool stuff over there. What are you doing? Oh, right. thanks for asking. And now, you know, you've got a couple of other teachers who are interested or right. that data does look different. And now you've got administrators coming down to your classroom. Like, what are you doing down there? Well, um, thanks for asking. Let me tell you about some of the things that I've tried to institute based on this book or based on this, you know, podcast or based on whatever conference that they've attended. So I, I will always say start small, but just find mm -hmm. the people in the building who are interested. So you're not necessarily doing it alone because that is exhausting right. and lonely. So just, you know, start small. If it's three people, five people, 10 people, get in your own practice. Because again, similar to what we have in the book, it's, it's still going to take some introspection, some self-reflection, like all of it still starts with self. So right. we can't, you know, pass it through the whole school building until we have worked on ourselves. I think the other part of that, which we often don't talk about, is if your school says no, well, we're scared. We don't want to take any chances. We don't want to end up on the news. You know, all right. those, you know, that, that's a reality that's right, right now. now. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. It mm -hmm. is. That is the one time that I then say, start by yourself right? Start doing the small things for yourself in your classroom. What are the small tweaks and adjustments that you can make so that you are, again, kind of building the capacity for the resistance 
that you most likely are going to experience because, you know, an administrator, someone has said no, but I also am the disruptor. So that's another reason why I say, you know, close your door, close your classroom door and just start in your own classroom space, right? Just do the small things that you can do in your classroom. Lucretia's going to come behind me, I'm sure, and clean it up and uh, give some more advice. (laughs) Because we work so well that way. So we're such a good team. No, I love it. I was going to say also, you know, if you're as an educator or teacher and you're going to your administrator or, you know, you're within an institution to frame it as an opportunity, you know, not as a response to. And you mentioned that earlier, like oftentimes people try to jump way, you know, into it like deep because they're responding to maybe a personal story or something that happened and was broadcast on the news or some, some, a tragedy. And, um, and I get it. Like we get it that that prompts an initial reaction, you know, that energy um, isn't sustainable. Like that energy is meant for, you know, that moment. And then also, you know, that could scare some people if you're saying, well, because this happened, you know, I want to do this. It doesn't seem, you know, maybe authentic and genuine and like I said, sustainable. So if you frame it as, you know, well, this is an opportunity, you know, this is something, you know, that we're lacking or we can grow more in or look, we have this opportunity to really expand in this area. I think the way you frame it is also helpful. So it doesn't, maybe it doesn't feel like, yeah, teacher, teacher, hair on fire kind of thing. I love that right. too image, you know, it's it's more of like, oh, well, I've noticed this. And I've seen that a lot with um, teachers where, okay, they have noticed something for a while, but then maybe didn't, mm-hmm. you know, that they could say something or approach it, you know, until, you know, after they've had a conversation with, with Tia um, or me, you know, and because you kind of, you need that affirmation, right? You need that validation, which is understandable. But also, yes, for teachers and schools who are experiencing that backlash, I would also encourage you to go outside of the school. Like the school isn't the only way, you know, to educate. I think about, I think I mentioned this in the book, how many times, you know, my education was amended by my mom. She would just correct things like, oh, that's funny that you learned it that way. Let me teach it to you this other way. (laughs) Or, you know, there's community groups. There's all kind, you know, you can start a, you know, a little group of, of parents or a collection of teachers and you can maybe start, you know, something there as well. So, and, you know, and that can't be, well, never mind, but, you know, you can do that. You can go outside of the wall. Right. <laughs> I, th- I think you're right. You know, I mean, if you only limit yourself to thinking it has to be in this one space, in this one way, you know, that does then maybe limit if, if that if those avenues or doors are sort of closed to you and, you know, I think you've made the point also that, you know, doing this work by yourself is, is really hard and isolating and sort of lonely. And it's nice to have um, an ally or two or three or more than thinking about, well, where else can you connect to find some like-mindedness to try to, to expand your ideas and and and, the, and that work in a, in a different space so that you can still you know do what do what you feel is the right thing for you to do 
there are many, you know, websites and, and national teacher organizations. There are, you know, just lots of opportunities for teachers if they are the only in their space where they can connect with other teachers, you know, in their state or in their region. But that also just across the country, there are lots of, of organizations who are doing this very work in supporting those teachers who kind of are isolated or there just might be, you know, just a few in a space. So those places and spaces are out there for teachers. And if they can't find a connection, at least they have the opportunity of your book. Because I'll say this, the questions at the end, the, the reflection pieces at the end, I thought were very provocative. They got me to think a lot about how I thought about things, how I'd like to think about things. I think, you know, you both have made the point that it starts with you and thinking about why do I think this way? Where does that come from? Do I agree with that? Do I disagree with that? And where do I go from there? So I think your book will be a a huge help and for lots of people, not just teachers, but lots of people who are, are ready and willing to and want want to do this work and, ha- and maybe need um, sort of a get, bit of a, a guidepost to get started. Right, because the, the book can go places that, you know, we can't go, right? Or the book can, like for the people who are, you know, maybe in an area where they are isolated, you know, well, you can have the book there. And so that's why we did try to bring lots of different voices and, you know, share so many scenarios and all the insight that we've gained because, you know, we want to be honest and truthful and encouraging because we can do this. You know, we can yes. do this. We can totally do this. <laughs> well, and we want this for our children. Right. I, I recall seeing, I, I actually looked up your TED talk and I thought, that, that points that you made about, you know, the one um, about for your children. Yeah, Lucretia, I, I watched that one. I couldn't find the other one. I couldn't find Tia's. If Is you it, have a link, I can sure you do. send me that link? I sure maybe, will. <laughs> can, maybe we can put the links to both of them below as well, because I Absolutely. think those are, they're very, very well done. And I thought the point that you made about, you know, doing this work for our children wanting a better world for them is is really you know as much as we all want a, a, a nice world for ourselves i think that oftentimes our motivation for doing it for us is less than so than it is for doing it for our children and i think that's a really strong motivator for creating a better world yeah it was for us <laughs> I, I kind of feel like it was on cruise control and then i had children and i thought oh i got some work yes. to do me too it makes you think about what you're doing and why yeah Mm -hmm. so i usually try to ask this question at the end is there anything that i didn't ask that you wish that i had or any other information that you would like to share with our listeners before we say parting is such sweet sorrow (laughs) lucretia i'm gonna let you go first you go first on this one Okay, I don't think so. I, I would encourage if people are looking for a learning space, Brownicity, our organization um, has a learning community and um, the learning community is, I mean, it is essentially for people to join and grow. So there's multiple learning experiences like courses and workshops and book talks. 
then soon we will be instituting even monthly, you know, live meetings and talks. And so it's just $10 a month or one ten a year, I think, for people to have access to <laughs> a supported growth process. So that's brownnessity.com. That's a great point that you make, because if you are finding mm-hmm. yourself, you know, by mm-hmm. yourself, there is a place right there where you can connect with people and go from there. Sorry, I don't mean to cut, cut oh, into don't, that. That's all right. I was just going to say, if you also wanted an academic space, you know, I see lots of corporations and, you know, companies and businesses are now paying for their employees to take classes. We offer the anti-racism graduate certificate class. It is 12 credit hours, and we have created this program where you actually will, you know, take the classes in the summer. So for educators who may be teaching during the school year, they can take two classes one summer and then practice what they have learned during that next school year. And then they come back and they take the second two courses during the summer. So even if, you know, again, you want some of the the academic knowledge, although it's, you know, we try not to be super, you know, super academic, but in the anti-racism graduate certificate program, there is an opportunity, you know, for folks to expand their, their knowledge base. That's great. Thank you ladies so much for your taking the time today. I really appreciate it. I've been talking with Dr. Tia Stark-Glass and Dr. Lucretia Carter-Berry about teaching for justice and belonging, planting seeds and nurturing change as it grows. If you'd like to learn more, we'll have links to their sites and their book on our upcoming, our podcast page. And thanks for joining us uh, today. And thank you for this thoughtful conversation. I truly appreciate the time you've spent with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Well, thank you so much for having us. We appreciate you for elevating our voices. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you to our wonderful guests for this thought-provoking conversation. If our listeners would like to continue the conversation about this topic, please find us on Facebook under Paz Program. Feel free to ask questions on the podcast episode post. We'll answer them, and we may feature the answers in a future Facebook Live video. Please join us next time on Social Emotional S as we continue to explore how SEL can benefit everyone at any age. Mm